Well, this is great for many reasons, but one of them is RUF is on the evening, and so when I preach at guest churches in the morning, I often say good evening and get all confused. So, good evening, <laughs> and this is accurate and correct. Um, the, the, I've, I've noticed a correlation, though. The smaller the people listening, the more comfortable I am. Um, and as Leanna knows, that can get maybe a little dangerous. So, um, so glad to be with you all. Uh, it is hard to believe that the Lord has had us at Winthrop serving for 10 years now, and it's been a really sweet blessing, and we're extremely grateful uh, to be there and continue. We're, we're grateful to still be there. It's, it's, we love college students, and we love sharing the gospel with them and, and, and equipping them with the gospel, and it's fun to see our alumni doing well and in, and having babies, and, you know, th- there's more than just having babies, but it's really sweet to see that, and um, sorry, to, sorry to put you on the spot, Leanna. She says, she's like, I thought I got away from him, and, and here he is again, um, but it's really sweet. One of the questions that, that uh, it's, I don't know where it started, but people will ask you, how's RUF? And the, the question, or the answer res- response is, ask me in 10 years, and now we can say, Man, we've seen God at work for, for over 10 years now. And, 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 and RUF's been at Winthrop since 1987, so many, many years. Uh, it's been sweet. Y'all have been connected, whether you guys are new at Christ Ridge or been around. Uh, this, this presbytery and the local churches here have loved and supported your local college students for, for over 30 years. And we had a um, 30th anniversary in 2017, and we found out that the local pastor in Rock Hill and a ruling elder had been praying for a reformed ministry for many, many years before RAF came in 1987. There was a group of, of students praying for RAF at Winthrop in the mid-80s. And we also found out uh, that there was a group of women, or two women that started praying in 1947 that the Lord would bring a reformed ministry to to Winthrop. And, uh, you know, God is faithful and God is good. And we're just a very small piece of God's faithfulness at that campus. It, you can see, read the news and it, it can feel like universities are a crazy place. And in many ways they are, uh, but God is still at work and moving and gathering his people to him and equipping uh, his covenant children to reach out. So thank you all. That was a long, I apologize. I told you smaller smaller group, I get a little more comfortable. If you've got your Bible, Galatians chapter 5, beginning verse 26, we're going to read through, I'm going to read through all of chapter 6. This is God's Word uh, for each of us this evening. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. 
It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may be not persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Would you all pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness and grace. Father, thank you for those gathering here tonight. We pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things of your law, that you, would, by your spirit, would draw us near to you, making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And if there are those who do not know you, Lord, may you draw them near to you. Would you cause them to repent, coming to know you tonight? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So you've got eight days. I'm just kidding. You don't actually have eight days. I mean, it is eight days until Christmas, but I say you have eight days because there's a movie coming out directed by George Clooney called Boys in the Boat. And I say you've got eight days because if you read it between now and then, then when you say, oh, I read the book, we'll believe you and not just that you watch the movie. It was a little bit of a joke. Um, it's probably a good movie. I don't really know. But if you've not read this book and the movie hopefully will be really good, it's an incredible book about eight-man rowing. Now, I, I know, now I've, I've since learned that Clemson has rowing, and so maybe rowing's a thing. I know we've got a couple Ivy Leaguers in here, so maybe rowing's a thing for them as well. But if you've never been interested in eight-man, eight-person rowing, Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Book. I'm selling it deeply, but I, I can't guarantee you'll like it, but I think it's really good. All right. This is how the author speaks about rowing. He says, one of the fundamental challenges in rowing is that when any one member of a crew goes into a slump, the entire crew goes with him. Nothing against baseball or basketball, but he says, a baseball team or a basketball team may very well triumph even if it's star players off his game. But the demands of rowing are such that every man or woman in a racing shell depends on his or her crewmates to perform almost flawlessly with each and every pull of the oar. The movements of each rower are so intimately intertwined, so precisely synchronized with the movements of all the others that any one rower's mistake or subpar performance can throw off the tempo of the stroke, the balance of the boat, and ultimately the success of the whole crew. More often than not, it comes down to a lack of concentration on one person's part. Right For the entire eight-person rowing crew, including their coxswain, they're centered on one thing, right? One thing together. They have to do it perfectly the entire time or else they will not win, right? Everything revolves around this one thing together. Their entire heart, their entire mind, their entire soul, everything is oriented around the same thing, right? It takes thousands upon thousands of the same minute decisions over and over and over again to get to the finish line. Everything is filtered through that. And so Paul's letter is oriented around one thing as well, the cross of Jesus. Everything begins and ends with the cross. Paul's entire life is filtered through the cross of Jesus. And the Galatians had originally filtered their life through this thing as well, through the cross as well. But like every letter in the New Testament, they're all written for a specific reason to a specific people, and Galatians is no different. And what is that thing? Paul gives us this reason 
in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are churning to a different gospel. Paul is saying, in other words, you used to center your life around the cross of Jesus. You used to center your life around the gospel. And now you filter your life through a different lens. Now you filter your life through a different linchpin, a different gospel. Paul's saying, why would you so quickly turn away from the gospel? And so as Paul's wrapping up his letter to the Galatians, he's once again calling them, and he's calling us, find your identity in the gospel, wrap your life around the gospel, wrap your life around the cross of Jesus. Let that be the center in which your whole life revolves. The two really simple but profound and complex thoughts a life that does not revolve around Christ and his cross, and a life that does. All right, so a life that does not revolve around Christ and his cross. The context for chapter 6 began in verse 26 in chapter 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Another way, I'm I'm always a little, you know, in, in RUF I can say things like, in Greek it says this, and no one will understand what I'm talking about, but I've got a former, sorry, a current professor and other probably Greek scholars in here as well. Another way to translate conceit might be vain glory or empty glory. And this helps to set the context for all of chapter six, that Paul is essentially saying, if our identity is wrapped in ourselves, if we are vainglorious people, if we are seeking an empty glory, then every relationship that we will have will be a relationship of pride and envy, or every relationship we have will be one that is transactional, right? The thinking will go, Whenever we enter into relationship with somebody or when we enter in relationship with God is, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? And then if something, someone doesn't offer us anything, then there's no reason to be in that relationship anymore. This is related to the next verses because if we are conceited, if we are vainglorious, because we, if we attempt to restore our brothers and sisters in Christ, then all we're trying to do is have a vainglorious relationship. We can't actually restore them because all we're trying to do is get something out of them. All we're trying to do is get something out of them. Only those who are in Christ, only those who know Jesus, are able to restore people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because otherwise it is a vainglorious, it is an empty glory relationship. This flows into verse 6 because what Paul is saying to the church of Galatia is he's not saying share encouraging words with your pastor, but to literally share with your pastor material help so that their pastor, your pastor can do their job. Now, your pastor's on writing leave, which is really great. And what is your pastor's job? Your pastor's job, in essence, is to point you to God, to remind you of God, to point you to Jesus. However, if you have a vain, glorious relationship with your pastor, how do you look at your pastor? Pastor, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? And on the flip side, If your pastor is vainglorious, how does he look at you? He says, what can you do for me? How can you get me ahead in life? This continues to flow into verses 7 through 10, because if we are vainglorious, if we are full of envy, if we live a life of comparing our lives to one another, then ultimately we are seeking to make our own image great, to make ourselves look great. And we can make ourselves look great, can we not? But what does Paul say in verse 7? He says, God cannot be mocked, right? You may have everyone around you fooled, 
But God knows your heart. God knows you cannot be mocked. Excuse me, God knows you you can't mock him, right? He knows that if you are sowing seeds of the flesh, then what ultimately will happen in verse 8 is corruption, and the Greek word here is one of gradual decay, like a corpse slowly rotting, right? If you want to live vaingloriously, if you want to live a transactional life where you are only looking to enter into relationships with others because you're trying to get ahead in life, your rotting corpse will eventually show. Think of the Olympics in Nazi Germany, 1936. Uh, It's where the end of this book, Boys in the Boat, ends up. If you showed up in 1936, Nazi Berlin, it was pristine. It was beautiful. It was an immaculate city. But what was behind that veneer? All of the atrocities that would come to fruition in World War II, right? If you've got a toddler, if you've had a toddler, if you've got grandchildren, you're about to have a baby. Sorry to point you out again. Right? Can that toddler hide that dirty diaper? (laughs) Right? The smell's coming out. As the old saying goes, the proof is in the pudding, right? It may look good, but once you get in there, it's not going to, you know, there's only so many colognes and perfumes, if you will, that you can put on. You know, maybe that toddler's learned how to use Febreze. You cannot mock God. You cannot mock God. You can try all you want. You can try all your want, but the Lord knows the heart. This vainglorious person then flows into verses 12 and 13 as those that make a good showing of the flesh. Here Paul is talking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers has come after Paul has left and they've preached another gospel. We know what that gospel is. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem council says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, the Judaizers were preaching Jesus plus more, Jesus plus circumcision, And they're teaching this message because it goes back to their vainglory. They're living a transactional life. They were only concerned about themselves and what they could get out of relationships. We know that in verse 12 because Paul says, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, right? Originally, Jews were the biggest persecutors of Christians. We know that from Paul who who despised and hated the church and dragged the church and persecuted them and hated them. And so the Judaizers are trying to avoid persecution by essentially any Gentile converts. They want to make them look more Jewish. And so they want them to be circumcised. And so then they would not be persecuted. Right? It may have seemed like the Judaizers were seeking the good of these converted Gentile and now Christians. But in reality, they're afraid. In reality, they're fearful. They don't want to disturb the peace They want to keep things comfortable, but at the end of the day, they're neutering the gospel by robbing the gospel of everything it was worth. It's something for us to think about today. Are there groups of people that we move in, or are there groups of people that we're afraid to be a part of because we're afraid of maybe what others would think about us, right? This happened earlier in the book of Galatia when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. 
And he moved away from them because he was afraid of what the Jews, the Jewish Christians would think about him. And, and Paul rebukes him. Paul says, if you know Jesus, if you are faithful to the gospel, you have to move towards these people as well. You cannot separate from them. And so it's a question to ask ourselves, are there, are there individuals, are there groups of people that we are afraid to move towards because maybe of how others would think about us? The Judaizers wanted the Gentile Christians to get circumcised because they're afraid of the persecution that might come. There's something else going on here, and it's pretty graphic. Verse 13 essentially says they're boasting in the flesh of the Gentile Christians who are circumcised. They're, it's a plan words, really. They're, they're essentially saying, like, look how many fleshes we have. Look how many fleshes we have. Ultimately, they're, they're boasting in outward success. Ultimately, they're boasting in, like, look at how many things we have done. Now, I don't think most of us would be so bold to say, like, look at all these Christian things we've done. God, don't you love me for this? But I think there are many ways that we do maybe allow this type of thinking to creep into our lives and our hearts, right? Like, do we measure how God loves us based on, like, if we had a good day or a bad day? If our children were good or not good? On the days when I read my Bible versus days that I didn't read my Bible, right? On the days that, on the number of times I've been to church, it's great that y'all are here versus the number of times I haven't been to church. Or maybe we're judging those who aren't going to church enough. Or maybe even simply like, man, I'm, I'm sinning a lot versus I'm sinning a little. And the number of people you've talked to Jesus about or, or the number of people you haven't talked to Jesus about. On how consistently you pray versus how you consistently don't pray. How much you give or how much you don't give. Right? I think maybe if we, we in any shape or form, measure our, our Christianity, if you will, on outward successes or inward successes, then perhaps we are are sowing a life in the flesh. Perhaps we are a little bit maybe more vainglorious than we want to believe that we are. And so what does Paul say to this in verse 13? He says, even the circumcised cannot keep the law. And what Paul's saying, like, even the Judaizers, these guys appeared good. These guys appeared to do really good things. These guys were, seemed to be godly. But even these guys cannot keep the law. Even those that think that they're amazing are failing, right? Some of you are really good at keeping a list and, and, and just sticking to it and, and reading your Bible, the good things. But ultimately, if our goal is outward success, Paul's saying, you can't keep the law. You can't do it. The proof is in the pudding, if you will. Ultimately, the life that you sow will be revealed. A life of sowing outward success will ultimately only reap death. In other words, I think Paul is kind of saying, if you want to try to live a vainglorious life, give it a shot. Just try and see what will happen. And ultimately, you can't do it. You cannot do it. This is, the, this is the part in the sermon where my wife Catherine might, might sometimes speak up in RUF and say, is there good news here? Because it's pretty weighty, right? And we should feel the weight of this. We should feel the weight, I think, of what Paul is trying to lay out, right? If you don't feel the weight, then, then maybe, maybe you are vainglorious, Maybe you are vainglorious. We should feel the weight. So what are we supposed to do? And, and I, was, I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' um, Sermon on the Mount, and, and I came across this, and he says this. He's a pastor 
in, in London, England in the 30s through 60s, and he says, the Christian gospel places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. The gospel puts a greater weight upon our attitude than upon our actions. Its main stress is on what you and I essentially are rather than on what we do. Being is more important than doing. Attitude is more significant than action. And he continues, a Christian is something before he does anything, and we have to be Christians before we can act as Christians. Because I think our, our tendency is to be like, I need to stop being vainglorious. I need to stop being conceited. And you and I know this, this is only going to work for a moment. What you and I need, what you and I require, is a whole new being before anything changes. Right? We need a life that doesn't revolve around ourselves. And so Paul says in verse 15, what matters, it's not circumcision, it's not the law, it's not following the law. What matters is a new creation. The Christian gospel places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. And so how does the gospel emphasize being, right? It emphasizes being at the cross, Verse 14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the answer to a vainglorious person? Right? If you try to keep the law, if you try to be good, if you try to consistently live a good life, if you're trying to earn favor with God, to grow in envying less and thinking rightly about yourself, to sow in the Spirit and reap eternal life rather than death, it begins by boasting at the cross. Being begins at the cross. John Stott said, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. I think he's pretty right here. He says, all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. At the foot of the cross, we shrink to our true size, right? Without the cross, we will think we are good enough. Without the cross, we think we're fine. Without the cross of Christ, we will continue to do rather than to be. The cross is the linchpin in which everything revolves, right? If there's no cross, then as Paul says, everything that we have is in vain. Without the cross, everything we do is meaningless. But the cross of Christ is everything for those that believe, right? It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the canceling of debt. It's the giving of Jesus's righteousness. It's the restoration of a relationship with God the Father, right? The cross of Jesus is the greatest sign of love this world has ever seen, right? If you're vainglorious, the cross shrinks us down to size because we can do nothing to earn God's love, if you're the low self-esteem person, if you think lowly of yourself, if you do not think highly of yourself, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, right at the cross, it builds you up. At the cross, it says you're beloved. At the cross, you're holy. At the cross, you're delighted in. At the cross, you are redeemed. At the cross, you are a wonderful child of God. At the cross, Jesus thinks about you. My voice got a little high. All the time. Y'all seen the Christopher Robin movie, 2018? It's uh, um, Chris Robin's a grown man, and he meets Winnie the Pooh, and Winnie and Christopher Robin, as a, as an adult, says to Winnie the Pooh, "It's a great movie, by the way. I shouldn't. I've given two recommendations. I'll, I'll stop." 
Christopher Robbins says to Winnie the Pooh, he says, I haven't thought about you in 30 years. Do you know how Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh responds? He goes, I think about you every day. At the cross, you are built up. At the cross, you are loved. For the Christian, at the cross, everything in life revolves around Jesus' cross. At the cross, in faith, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Paul tells us in verse 14, he says, the world is crucified to you. The world no longer has dominion over you. The world no longer has power over you. The Lord is no longer appealing to you anymore. Right? The world often loves to hold up the guilty sign to you and say, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And if you, your life has been crucified at the cross, you're no longer guilty. Paul also says that you've been crucified to the world, right? Your flesh is no longer appealing to you. The idols of your heart have been crucified at the cross, right? The world, I tell my students this all the time, the world loves to hold up a guilty sign. You know who holds up a guilty sign more often than the world? You do. You are constantly, constantly berating yourself and saying you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. At the cross of Jesus, you are innocent. You are holy. Stop holding the scarlet letter on yourself. It's wiped away. It's wiped away. To boast in the cross of Jesus is to say you're no longer guilty. It's to say you are forgiven. It's to say you are beloved, right? And because if that is true, if that is your new being, then we get to sow in the Spirit. Then we get to do good to one another. Then we get to love one another. Because it is a hard transition to go, because there is a life of doing in the Christian life. But it begins with being. And it's a tension, right? Paul here says he has the marks of Christ on him, the result of believing in and following the Christianity of Christ crucified, right? Like following Jesus will bring pain and suffering. Another boys in the boat reference, he says it's not a question of whether you will hurt or how much you will hurt. It's a question of what you will do and how well you will do it while pain has a wanton way with you, right? Paul isn't saying go seek out pain and suffering, but it will come as we follow our Savior. And at the same time, Paul also says peace and mercy will follow you, and that is a tension of the Christian life. On the one hand, pain and suffering, and on the other hand, the peace and the mercy of Jesus. So naturally, I have to finish with the illustration that I began with. And if I haven't sold you on this book, it's okay. You guys are great. The main character is a real person. He's, so the author says, for Joe, who'd spent the last six years doggedly making his own way in the world, who'd forged his identity on stoic self-reliance, nothing was more frightening than allowing himself to depend on others. Perhaps you can relate to that. The author continues, humility was the common gateway through which they were able now to come together and begin to do what they'd not been able to do before. Joe could finally abandon all doubt, trust absolutely without reservation that he and the boy in front of him and the boy behind him would all do precisely what they needed to do at precisely the instant they needed to do it, right? At the cross of Christ, as we come to Jesus humbly, we cannot do so transactionally because we've got nothing to offer him. So boasting in the cross, right, is trusting and believing that Jesus has done and will do precisely what is needed at the instant it is needed. Because of the cross, 
we can go forth in this world. Because of the cross, we can love one another. Because of the cross, we don't have to build up our own reputation. We get to build up the reputation of Jesus. Because of the cross, mercy, grace, and love will flow through you, and you can carry on. I know it's Easter season. We think of the birth of Jesus. But at the cross, at His resurrection, grace and mercy and peace comes to you. Would you all pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his grace. Thank you for his mercy. Thank you for his cross. May you give us faith to trust and to believe that at the cross we are beloved. At the cross we are delighted. At the cross we are forgiven. At the cross you loved us. May we have faith to believe and faith to move forth in this world with the same love that Jesus has for us. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.